The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code THEGIST. It's Monday, June 22nd, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In the wake of the killings of nine parishioners in Charleston by a madman with a powerful handgun and lots and lots of bullets, the battle lines have been drawn. What to do about that harmful, hateful, insidious piece of cloth? For Meet the Press on Sunday. Specifically symbolism, this Confederate flag, what does it symbolize? Southern pride or racism? Split right down the middle, 49-49. I take issue with the word there. The word is or. Southern pride or racism? Oh, I'm not saying that Southerners are inherently hateful, but if your heritage, let's even acknowledge your legitimate ties to the past, are a symbol that makes so many people feel so terrible, just do the non-terrible thing. Stuff your heritage. Let me be clear. Confederate flag, I'm against it. I think the argument goes something like this. It reminds us of slavery. Yeah, but it shouldn't. But it does now. It all hinges on what the next response is. If the person says, yeah, but it does, do you say, yeah, well, you're wrong. Then you're a horrible person. It's just not nice. But if the next sentence is, oh, well, okay, you know, in that case, let me take it down. Slavery was really, really bad. Then you're decent. And we don't even have to get into who's right and who's wrong. The sons of Confederacy are wrong, by the way. And we don't even have to thank the lords of Chiasmus. Do you know this? rhetorical technique. Here, I'm going to employ some on Mike Huckabee. We're asking, is South Carolina a racist state because of the flag that flies on their capital grounds? No, the flag flies in the capital because it's a racist state. We don't even have to say that. We'll never even have to say that if South Carolina were just a more polite state, if it took the feelings of its people into account. And that would also provide the added benefit of not making the issue of the moment a question of cloth. Now, I know the huckster is a man of the cloth, so maybe that's why he defends the flag. Or, all right, fine, he'd probably say, technically, I'm just defending the process that allows South Carolina to keep the flag. You know, states' rights, because that's not a symbol of slavery. Yeah, 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 I know all that. But the question of the moment should be a little bit harder. It should be, but it's not. It shouldn't be about flags. It should be about guns. But we've been through that discussion before. Guns won. This time, I don't know. Maybe flags will sag. On the show today, I return to the Charleston shootings in the spiel. Why I argue we shouldn't take too many lessons from the materials that infest the minds of maniacs. But first, it's story time with our resident raconteur, Matthew Dix. And he has some hints for you. So we're here once more with Matthew Dix, a very, very interesting man, and a man who can make you more interesting via the medium of storytelling. He is a, what's that up to, 19, 20, 21? It's stuck at 17. 17-time moth storytelling champion. He's an author of a few novels, teaches the fifth grade, runs a storytelling a little business, little business out of his trunk in Hartford. He's also a wedding DJ. We don't even get to talk about that. When's the last time he DJed a wedding? I have one coming up in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so the storytelling, maybe, I don't know, maybe when, you know, he uh, brings the bride up, maybe there'll be a little vestige of a story. But here he is to tell us uh, how to tell a story. And we've been working with Frank Kennedy, who is the winner of our call to uh, tell a story. Hello, Frank. How are you? I'm doing great. 
And what we're going to do is Matt's going to give me a little lesson and then you're going to absorb the lesson. Okay. I'm a sponge. Thank you, sponge. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought today we would talk about uh, the four lies that I think you can tell in storytelling. Can I just tell you what my number one lie is? If it gets slow, just always inject a cheetah. That always livens things up. And then a cheetah showed up. All right. I haven't tried that yet. Yeah, that's the fifth lot. I'll be at the moth tonight. The, I'm going to see if I can get a cheetah into my story. That's your lotto bonus supplementary cheetah, if you need that. Yes. All right. In case of boredom, break glass, there's a cheetah. But you go. All right. So the first lie is an obvious one. It's a lie of omission. It's the hardest one for people to do, though, because what happens is people get attached to their stories and to the truth of their story. So I have a story where I went to New Hampshire once and I ran out of money and I ran out of gas and I didn't have a way to get home. I didn't have any parents, didn't have any friends. And I was a McDonald's manager at the time. I had a McDonald's uniform in my back seat. So I put my McDonald's uniform on and I began going door to door in this little town collecting money for Ronald McDonald Children's Charities. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty bad. It was bad. Yeah. And I end up at the doorstep of a guy whose wife died of cancer five years before and he's essentially been alone in this tiny brick house for five years and part of my pitch is that my mom has died of cancer and my sister's dying of cancer which is both not true and he ends up weeping on the porch with me for half an hour and I just sit there and ache and it's the worst moment at that point in my life I've had many other worst moments since then but that was the worst one So I tell that story, and the part that I leave out, which is really hard for me to leave out, is I have a hitchhiker with me the whole time. I've picked him up because I thought he was going to have cash, and he doesn't. So then I keep him with me for good luck. And while I'm telling, while this guy's telling his story of his dead wife to me, he's hiding behind a tree across the street, and he's peeking out from behind the tree constantly, wondering, like, what the hell is going on? Should I run away? Are the cops on the way? And there's this whole adventure with this hitchhiker and lots of like amusing things happen with him. He disappears from the story completely because it's not a story that's supposed to be about the hitchhiker. Was the hitchhiker a giant purple blob shape? No, he was not. Okay, not Grimace. Not Grimace. So, you know, it's a lie of omission. A lie of omission isn't really a lie. We could debate that forever. But think of it as a movie. A movie can be a nonfiction movie. To me, that's the equivalent of you have, you cast it as a buddy flick and just one of the guys isn't working. There's a way to make an edit where you cut the other guy out and that's what you do. Is that unethical? No, not at all. What's unethical is what you did and our listeners are going to be a little concerned. So what did you, you kind of stole these people's money. I did. And? Well. Tell me you made restitution. I'll tell you, when I tell the story on stage, it ends with me driving away feeling like a terrible person. In truth, I go home and I promise myself that I'm going to put a dollar in every Ronald McDonald Children's Charities container as a customer. I I end up paying back $642 before my wife discovers what I've been doing and she frees me of my obligation. But that does not make a good story because nobody wants to hear about redemption on stage. They want to hear about failure on stage. They maybe don't want to hear about your own self-aggrandizing redemption. Exactly. Yeah, and it was all okay in the end. Cool. I love it. I love the lie of omission. Wow, and what a story. You, Matt. Interesting. Okay, let's go to number two. All right, the second lie is a lie of assumption. And that is when you can't remember a detail of a story, but you want everyone to see the same thing as you're telling the story. So the example for me in that is when I was little, my mom had a car with a hole in the front passenger side, a big hole, like as mm-hmm. big as a basketball on the floor. Yeah. So you could see the road going through. Yeah. My brother and I would take our Batman and Robin action figures, the big ones, the good ones, and we'd tie a rope around them. We'd drop them through the hole while my mother was driving, and we'd let the line out so Batman and Robin would end up bouncing behind the car. 
and we'd tie them off on the gear shift. We'd climb into the way back, and we'd watch Batman and Robin bounce behind the car. One day, Batman hits another car, and it sets off a chain of events that is my story. I can't remember what that car is. But I decide when I'm preparing my story that this car is too important for everyone to be picturing a different car. I want this moment to be universal for the audience. And so I say station wagon. A lie of assumption is okay as long as the assumption is a reasonable assumption. Now, if it had been a cherry red Corvette, my story would be a hell of a lot better. But I can't make that assumption because in 1978, it is unlikely that I hit a cherry red Corvette or I would remember it. So you assume details when you feel they're important, but you have to make the assumption a reasonable assumption. So I say wood paneled station wagon because it's 78 and that's on the road all the time. And now we all have the same image in our head. But when I work with storytellers, they're always telling me like, well, I can't really remember that part. And I say, well, take an educated guess. And as long as your educated guess isn't helping your story, but helping your audience see your story better, then it's a reasonable assumption. I'm with you. Let's go to number three. All right. Number three is an easy one. It's the lie of compression. And that is a lie when you want to push time or space together for the sake of the audience. And it just happens in stories when I may do something on August 1st, and then the next moment in my story when something's actually going to happen is on August 17th. But if I leave them on August 1st and 17th, the audience will be left wondering what the hell happened during those 16 days between those two important moments. There's nothing wrong with making August 17th, August 2nd. So you push time together, you push places together, and you push distances together so that the audience can better picture the story in a complete capsule. Will you literally say the next day or will you just say, then the next thing I do? I might say the next day. Yeah, because I don't want to leave any lingering doubt. There's Mm -hmm. a time when you're telling a story when you want people to sort of have some cognitive dissonance and be wondering. But there are times when you absolutely don't want people wondering. You want them with you the whole time. And I determine if I don't want anyone wondering where this time went, how far this thing was, I will compress it and make it simpler for the audience. And again, all the lies that I tell on stage are never told for my benefit or for the story's benefit, but for the clarity of the audience. Okay, so assumption, compression, omission. These are all sounding a little like Catholic feast days. Uh, Annunciation. (laughs) What's the fourth one? All right, and the last one is lies of progression. And this is a lie where you switch the order of things for the benefit of the audience. And the best example I have of this, I was working with a storyteller whose brother died young. He was about 40. And it's a story about what they're going to do with his ashes. And she begins her story by telling me he's a Baltimore Orioles fan and they want to get the ashes on Camden Yards, which you know is impossible to do because if you could do that, Fenway would just be buried in ashes and you wouldn't be able to play. But they decide they're going to go try to do this. And it's an amazing story. They're off season. They're three days after the season has ended and they find a caretaker who lets them onto the field after you know, many machinations, and they spread the ashes in front of the Orioles dugout so that each time an Oriole takes the field, they'll carry a little bit of the brother onto the field with them. But then the story goes on, and she says, then we went to the inner city because he also liked to go to strip clubs. So they <laughs> spread the ashes on the doorsteps of all of these strip clubs. So every time a guy walks into the strip club, they're going to carry a little bit of the brother as well. And then she ends the story at a tree where they used to have a picnic because they had a little bit of ash left, so they dump it at the tree where they used to picnic. And so I tell her, listen, it's fantastic, 
but you have to end at Camden Yards. Yeah, the tree is not your climax. Right. Yeah, we so, can all reach the tree. Yeah. yeah, but it was some fighting with her because she said, well, that's not the truth. And I said, I understand it's not the truth. But you start with the tree because that's sentimental. And then you go to the strip clubs because that's funny as hell. And then you end up with your climax with you battling against this caretaker to get your ashes onto Camden Yards, which is the impossible thing to do, and you managed to do it. And she came to terms with it, and she understood. And again, it's not a lie to help her. It's a lie to help the audience because the audience does not want a story that declines. The, we want stories yeah. that escalate, that crescendo uh, to a point. And so we're helping the audience enjoy the story by flipping the order of events. I think uh, I'll use the movie example. If this is done in a movie, we've all signed off on the ethics of it. These things happen. A movie that followed those events would it should not be assailed by anyone as unethical. If this was done under the guise of journalism, there might be a problem. Right. And that's where storytelling, the art of storytelling, when it's used, when it's played in forums like on This American Life, maybe even The Moth, we'll get to that. I think there's sometimes a question as to what the forum is. What Mike Daisy did on This American Life is clearly unethical. What David Sedaris says he does, probably doing the, these things is a gray area. Because you've laid it out, I don't think that it's a gray area, but what about the forum that you're in? How does that affect your take on the four lies? I think that as long as these lies that I'm telling don't add anything extraneous to a story that is unreasonable or is a cheat, I think you can always tell between the I'm changing my story for the sake of the audience versus I'm cheating my story because it's not quite good enough or I'm not quite good enough of a storyteller and I have to add this thing in that isn't real in order to make the story work. Frank, we chose you. Frank, how you doing, by the way? I'm doing great. How's what Matt was saying strike you? Well, uh, my wife says I'm a great liar, so I'm always glad to get new lessons in doing it, but I agree that a great story is is the truth, but in presenting a story, it helps to uh, you know fill in the blanks. Uh, a subset of that is the, the lie of expansion, where Matt encouraged me to expand on my thought process, which probably does run through your mind very quickly, but takes a long time to explain. Okay, when right. You... So when you said the live expansion, at first I said, well, that's just, you know, going into fine detail. But you're right. There are some things that maybe take a split second to decide, and you could talk about that decision for many more minutes than it took in real life. Right. And plus the thoughts in your mind, because there's a history to that thought, yes. which you may, we may have to explain. It's a good point, though, Frank. I, have a, I often tell storytellers that every second on stage does not actually have to last a second. So some seconds can be much less than a second, and some seconds can last a minute. So you literally can have a moment in your life that lasts, a, I'm going to tell a story tonight. That's, it's about a second of my life that I'm really sharing, but I'm going to spend a minute talking about that second, and that's sort of that expansion that you're talking about. Mm, that's good. Sure, only Kiefer Sutherland in the 24 storytelling is minute by minute. <laughs> High noon also. Minute of right. minute of screen time, minute of real time. Right. Very few other movies like that. Thank you, Frank. <laughs> thank you, Matt. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, Matthew Dix, an interesting fellow. The most interesting in the world? We have said so. Our storytelling guide. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Mike. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. On this our wedding day.
forsake me, oh my darling. Wait, wait long. I do not know what fatal waits me. Getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Going to the post office takes up valuable time. Leasing a postage meter. Man, is that a depressing phrase. <laughs> Redolent of the 70s, leasing a postage meter. It's expensive. It has multi-year commitments, hidden fees. Luckily, I know a better way. I think you know the way I know it's Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk. Official U.S. postage. You can print it from your computer, your printer. You even get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. You know why? There are no postage discounts at the post office. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter, a leased postage meter. And you can save up to 80% compared to this postage meter. And you'll avoid going to the post office. Right now, use my promo code, the gist, for a special offer. No risk trial. $110 bonus offer includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. And now the spiel of reasons and racists. I want to talk about the Charleston shootings, and the tone I want to take is one of humility. Since it happened Wednesday, I've been doing a lot more listening than talking. Good strategy, right? Yeah, don't do it a lot. So I heard a lot, I read a lot, I thought about what I thought, and I'm still thinking about it, but I'd like to make a couple of, I think, non-obvious points. So in this show before, I have talked about the dangers of taking the gripes of a madman and using them to take the temperature of a society. The South Carolina shooter was a horrible racist. He was motivated by hate and by the very worst kind of anti-black animus. I read the details of this wastrel's life and I contrasted them with the details of the slain pastor, Clemente Pinckney. The Times wrote that he was elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives at the age of 23. He always had a sense of purpose. Of Pinckney, they said, in seventh grade, the skinny student endured the taunts of his classmates in Jasper County, a depressed angle of what Senate colleagues call the Forgotten Triangles, taunts for wearing a starch shirt and tie and for carrying a briefcase instead of a backpack. He thought you needed to dress like someone to be someone. Very second I read that paragraph, I had the weirdest thought. I just thought, wouldn't a racist, like an actual bona fide, wear the Confederate flag, use the N-word racist, wouldn't even he, not that his opinion matters, but wouldn't even he look at Clem Pinckney and say that is a life better lived than the life of this shooter who never amounted to anything. Not that the, not that the opinion of the racist counts, but wouldn't everyone just say one is so valuable and the other this drug abusing loser dropout who killed this valuable member of society? He is, he is worse. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The whole thing just makes me sad and outraged. Like everyone, I'm no different from anyone. And by the way, that fact that America is sad and outraged, that has been used by some as evidence that white supremacy isn't endemic. Here's the other side. The other side says that this shooting is part of a peace, a peace with all the Fergusons and Staten Islands and Cleveland and North Charleston. It shows how little our society values black lives. Now, of course, both of those sentiments can be true. 
America, white America, certainly doesn't literally want to kill black people. But white America also largely seems unwilling to do a lot to prevent black people from being killed. I think there is a lot of evidence that black lives are not as valued by American society as white lives. But I also continue to question whether it's proper to draw many conclusions about the motives of a madman. Now, I know that by saying that, I'm aligning myself with some in this debate who are apologists, who say, see, racism isn't a problem, who say, see, racism is overblown. But I don't think that at all. I don't think sexism is overblown either. But I made the same argument when we were debating the shootings in Santa Barbara, where the shooter's manifesto was publicized afterwards, and it was deeply misogynistic. I question whether societal racism or societal sexism put a gun in anyone's hand versus personal madness putting a gun in someone's hand versus the fact that if you're a young man growing up in the South or the West or most rural areas, some older relative as a matter of upbringing is literally going to put a gun in your hand and our legislatures will not do much to restrict the power and the deadliness of that gun. So let me make the case. It's an unpopular case right now, but let me make the case that the shooter's motives aren't necessarily a temperature of society. Let's do so by taking the murders of Jews, where Jews are the target. It is certainly not the case that there's no anti-Semitism in America, but there is poll after poll. There is empirical finding after finding that anti-Semitism has declined so much that it really barely touches the lives of most American Jews. Still, there are killings. In 2014, a Kansas Jewish community center, and a few years before that, there was killing at the U.S. Holocaust Museum. There was a shooting at the Seattle Jewish Federation. There was those attempted killings of the Jewish preschool children in Granada Hills outside Los Angeles. Angeles. Now, I take all of those incidents to mean that extremists are extreme, that maniacs are maniacal, and let's be real, that guns are too readily available to extremists and maniacs. If we say these shooters were an inevitable outgrowth of societal attitudes, that can also be turned around. There are shooters, there are killers whose brains are warped around nearly every ideology. In 1973, There was a man in New Orleans who over two days killed nine people. It culminated in a standoff at a Howard Johnson's. Look up Mark Essex on Wikipedia. Killed nine, injured 13. Motive, black power, right? The shooter in South Carolina actually said of the climate of racism in Charleston, quote, we have no skinheads, no real KKK, no one doing anything but talking on the internet while someone has to have the bravery to take it to the real world. If anything... This shows that he felt isolated in his hatred and rage. Guns. The fact that he could get guns and ammunition, that is why those people are dead. What's an easier fix? To get people to change their minds? And by people, I mean every last member of society. A society where he couldn't even have a conversation with people about doing what he was going to do. We have to get even the craziest 0.001% of our population not to hate. That seems a pretty heavy lift. That doesn't seem possible. But why is saying, yeah, you can't have access to this highly complex piece of machinery, this weaponry that has been banned or highly restricted in every other forward-thinking society on Earth, why is that so impossible? I I think that's a more likely thing to pursue than changing every last person in society's attitudes. 
I don't blame so many people for coming to the conclusion that this was about lingering societal racism because there definitely is lingering societal racism. And I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings who's feeling raw in this moment, but a tragedy like this can be an opportunity. It could be an opportunity to talk about a flag or to talk about something like a side issue. I read this in the New Republic today. Headline, I don't want to be an excuse for racist violence anymore. Subhead, white women's passive role in racist attacks like Charleston. Well, who does want to be an excuse for racist violence? Yeah, I know there's a history of using the virtue of white women as a justification for anti-black violence. Is this really, was this article really in the category of things that needed to be said? Filled as it was with sentences like, gender is always raced and race is always gendered. In the wake of a tragedy, an atrocity that's senseless, it's a human tendency to give it meaning. And that meaning is usually the thing that we've been saying all along, that we're sexist or that we're racist, or that we abhor Christians. Yeah, that's, that's the Fox News takeaway. I think two of those things are true. I think one is ridiculous, and I think none of those things are why nine people are slaughtered. Terrible ideas infest the minds of humans. I resist ceding the agenda to those minds, the minds of the very last people who should get a say. Americans are gunned down because of terrible ideas more than in any other advanced culture on earth. Do we have more terrible ideas here in America? I don't think so. I think we have more guns. And that is it for today's show. Producer Andrea Salenzi is the Beyonce of the gist. Managing producer Joel Meyer is something of a Kelly Rowland. And executive producer Andy Bowers, if you really think about it, he has the whiff of a Michelle Williams. Why do I mention these members of Destiny's Child? Well, one reason. Every Monday, the gist plays a new song, a new They Might Be Giant song. It's part of Dial a Song. The number is 844-387-6962. And starting on Tuesday, you could dial that number and you could hear that song. But for this edition of the They Might Be Giants just Monday song debut, there was another place you could hear the song. That place was the 1999 Destiny's Child LP, The Writings on the Wall. Because this song was their first number one single. And now it has finally achieved the status to which it was destined. It's now a They Might Be Giants cover. Ladies and gentlemen, They Might Be Giants with Bills, Bills, Bills. At first we started out real cool Taking me places I ain't never been But now you're getting comfortable And doing those things you did no more Slowly making me pay for things Your money should be handling And then you asked to use my car Driving all day and not fill up the tank And you have the audacity To even come and step to me Ask to hold some money from me Until you get your check next week Good for nothing type of brother Silly me, why 
I'm Jack Dillon, producer of How Your World Works, a new show from Popular Mechanics on Panoply. For our first episode, we needed some help getting started, so we contacted this guy. Some guy I knew that I worked with at a studio had this, this foam hanging around, this acoustic foam, these panels. That's right. That's podcasting legend Mark Marin who will be joining us on the show. He'll tell us what you can do with a garage, a microphone, and a bunch of other stuff that he doesn't fully know how to use. But he's gotten by all right. That's How Your World Works on Panoply.